You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome, everybody, to the 3DM's podcast. We are on episode 42, and we are going to be talking about Session Zero world building for Druids and Barbarians. Paul, how you doing, buddy? Well, you know, been better, been worse. It's going well, though, and I'm glad to be here. So there's always that. Yep. I'm Jake. I'm glad to be here as well. And we got a packed show, so we're going to hop right in. So um, as we've been doing in this little series so far, we've been covering what do you do when uh, af- after your player selects whatever class they're going to play. Um, Their class race combination. How do you help tailor the world and the game experience to enrich that personal that player's personal enjoyment? Uh, and we're going to get into barbarians and druids today. So, going to start right at the top uh, with a little bit of a history lesson because I think it really enriches the understanding of what barbarian and druid is. Uh, barbarian and druid, classically speaking, compared to every other class in the game, have as it's built into their names where fighter is just a description and wizard is a description. Um, Barbarian is a title levied by your enemies upon you. And druid, it was a title in society. Cleric could also kind of work into that, but bear with me here. Um, And we're going to cover both of those right now, the historical meaning at least. So with barbarian and druid, uh, let's just, we're going to do a brief little history lesson. So back when Rome was a thing, Still technically is, but back when Rome mattered. The Rome that was. Yeah. Uh, When Rome was a big deal, they levied – we'll also throw in the Greeks here too. But they levied the use of a term uh, to the – what they considered the uncivilized cultures. It was mostly a Greek term, but the Romans copied everything from Greece, so it's not entirely – They levied a term against their enemies who they considered uncivilized and savage barbarian um which People is who can't speak greek or roman or yep. latin i should say mm-hmm. uh and uh, often the depictions in roman literature were them as filthy savages who used uncouth uh combat tactics such as shouting ambushes and not wearing pants while fighting romans didn't wear pants what are you talking about the barbarians are the ones that wore pants yeah Semantics. They didn't wear shirts while fighting. That's the important distinction. Um, throughout time, uh, those depictions of barbarians as unclothed uh, wild warriors who uh, fought savagely and not with uh, proper military training um, has kind of snowballed into its own character type. Uh, same with the druid, but we're going to cover that in its own weird historical connotations in a bit. We're sticking mainly with Barbarian for the second. Um, can you turn down the uh, headset volume a little yes, bit? Yes, I can. Thank you. So, real-world Barbarians. Um, 
there's actually a pretty decent list of people if you want to look at what is considered a barbarian, enemies of Rome. Uh, look up Attila the Hun. He's a pretty neat guy. Um, He's a a bit later. We could talk about Versingtorgix and the uh, the Gauls, the yeah. Celts. Um, uh, we could talk about, of course, the, the Franks, yep. the Saxons. Uh, much later, but. much later. But all of these groups were primarily considered barbarians. If you look at warrior cultures, you're going to have a good list of where to start with uh, barbarians. Yeah. So. so, step one, I guess, in talking about you have a you know you have a player who sits down at the table and they want to play barbarian. Um, the first question you have to ask yourself when it comes to barbarians is what is the what is the status quo of these fringe societies that do not uh, go with the regular grain? How does that work in your setting? Um, you know, what is the level? Is it high fantasy, low fantasy? And how does that apply to what they do? Um, is it high fantasy or low fantasy is probably the question you should be asking yourself well before you start running the game. But we're here to help regardless. Yes. Um, Let's talk, but uh, sticking to old world barbarian influences a little bit more. Um, any warrior uh, culture that did not have a highly practiced and doctrined military. It, it's the warrior culture versus the soldier culture. Is what yes, you're warrior culture versus soldier culture. Anything that had a warrior culture can be used as barbarian fodder. Um, Inspiration. I mean, obviously, you shouldn't just wholesale rip off uh, cultures, but there's nothing wrong with taking some inspiration from history because after all, truth is stranger than fiction, all that. Yes. Um, so when it comes to just basing your stuff, I mean, we can rattle off various warrior cultures for ages because there have been thousands of them in well, more like since you know, hundreds, but now I'm being, getting into semantics. Yeah, but. there's enough of them that you can find inspiration and fill your world with them. Uh, big ones, of course, are the Vikings. Uh, Vikings. Native American cultures make excellent uh, comparisons for barbarians, but we're we're about to have a little talk on all that stuff here in a second. Um, I'm fond of the Maori warrior traditions because those are fucking sweet. <laughs> like, there's no way around it. They're sweet. They yeah, do the haka. Sweet. They swing spiked bats at things. They make stuff out of sharks. Maori are awesome. Um, yep, we are down to two DMs currently. We can't we can't find anybody to fill the third chair all the time. At, but we can't it's too change late the, to change the branding. It's too late to change the branding. Uh, but really quick, too, as just a brief aside, and I'm kind of stumbling into this, but this is just something I kind of want to cover. Um, let's talk about just as an entire world and a fantasy building block, the problem of incorporating every culture that humanity has into a setting. Um it's a problem that we run into a lot because uh, and often games can be described as racist or just, you know, favoring uh, white European fantasy um, because it's what's primarily taught in schools. And it's what a lot of people who start no. running D&D &D know based on tropes and traditions and stuff like that. The hard part with fitting in several other cultures is um, so once we've crammed all of the wondrous melting pot that is humanity into a game we now have to account for dwarves elves orcs half orcs uh tiefling tieflings halflings gnomes giants turtles lizard folk bugbears bugbears hobgoblins hobgoblins regular goblins regular goblins erica erica goddamn bird people uh, azimars uh tabaxi did i forget halflings you did what about gnomes uh, you you mentioned gnomes. How about but, Kenku? Uh, 
I think you missed that one. Uh, and then all the There's other races that people missing. are still clamoring for. And still even leaving aside, of course, the ones we don't like talking about, like Drow and Duragar, because those, those are sub-races. Yeah, because those are sub-races and they have their own traditions. It gets really messy when creating a game. And so uh, just as a quick and easy aside, it's, uh, you know, if you're going to add a culture to your game to use as inspiration, pay homage and be respectful and you don't, you don't have to open a scholarly article, but you should at least read the Wikipedia page. Read the Wikipedia and try to actually do what you're using as homage as just a cultural touchstone and not a bunch of stereotypes. You know, people aren't going to really like it if you want to do – because let's use the Cherokee, for example, because they are fantastic, wonderful uh, – wow. Barbarian – Inspiration. I mean, I, wouldn't, I wasn't going to say barbarian. Yeah, wow, smooth. They're a very. I was saying, rich, we're talking about barbarians, but now I feel racist. They have a very rich tribal tradition, you know, that has a its own language and a set of traditions and ways that they worship and celebrate different things. And if you just slap a headdress on people and start making them do rain dances, and that's about as deep as you get into it, no one's going to have fun. You're going to feel kind of dirty. You might, and you might feel dirty. So now that. My little rant's over. Hmm. Let's. <laughs> uh, I'm getting roasted in our comments. Um, Rough. Yeah. Uh, Any roasted gear to share? Or are you going to make people? Uh, oh, no. It's just Fado. Um, three DMs is more of a metaphorical concept. <laughs> there needs to be at least two DMs to contain Jake's, Jake's ego alone. Oof. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, rough. Yeah. That hurt. Um, anyway. So now that I'm done with my little uh, soapbox talking, <coughs> let's talk about fictional barbarians. Um, Conan is the patient zero for fantasy barbarians. <coughs> and of course, he's just dying a little bit. Don't mind me. Um, all of his ripoffs and inspirations, especially Cohen has some good ones. If you like Discworld. But. Yep. Uh, and when it comes to barbarians in fiction, they everybody kind of really just boils back down to Conan, the barbarian. He is the basis. He is the shirtless, damn near naked, muscular, tougher-than-nails guy. Um, Despite the fact that he doesn't actually have that much in common with Dungeons & Dragons barbarians. No. Really doesn't. He's more like a fighter rogue, honestly. But, well, that's details. Uh, But, details, semantics aside, when it comes to looking at fictional influences, there's actually a much, much more uh, open-ended pantheon of people from fiction to choose from you just have to look at the boiled down character tropes of a barbarian and it's two very simple things a they're tough as nails and b their uh training and tactics could be best described as unconventional um using definitions like this this allows people like john mcclain from Die Hard to be considered barbarian sure he might have been trained as a cop but he's a uh, loose cannon but he's a loose cannon with nothing to lose crawling around a plaza on christmas barefoot and uh using whatever he can get his hands on to beat up hans gruber and co um another barbarian from fiction um, from you know modern media who fits all the boxes pretty neatly is jason Voorhees. Um, when he was alive, we're not talking about in number six when he becomes a revenant. That's that's a completely different show. But um, 
Wasn't in, he always revenant? No, in movies two, three, and four, he's actually alive. And uh, while he has a 20 in strength, dexterity, and constitution, he's got about a five in everything else with a face that only a mother could love, but is tougher than shit, takes an axe wound to the head. If you, I mean, if you want to look up all the things he go through, goes through before he gets killed by Corey fucking Feldman in the fourth movie, then uh, look it up. He was a very tough boy until he turned into a zombie in part six. The point being... That covers barbarian territory. So you're saying he's a bear totem barbarian. He is a bear totem barbarian, and he doesn't believe in the da- he doesn't believe in the damages. Now, um, sitting down with your player who has selected barbarian and kind of fleshing out that character, um, getting into that tribal, you know, the tribal stuff and the warrior culture stuff we talked before. Um, again, a big a thing we're a big fan of here on the show is making your players do the work. Find out what they think their tribe is like as as i always say don't do the work if you don't have to yeah make you know find out what they find in what are they looking for in their uh origins in their origins and in the culture you know if they want to do something like uh like the the islander pacific you know warrior cultures then cool like the cultures of samoa and new zealand and those locations are deep and rich and you could dive in and play a lot with those. Um, if they want to do stuff like with native Americans or, you know, if they want to go old school, traditional barbarian and do Celts and Saxons and Vikings, Vikings and things like that, then cool. Do your research and start building societies around those ideals. I, I, I should say as we're going into this though that not every barbarian is going to be tribal or a outlander as the uh, Dungeons and Dragons sort of termed uh, the people who live on the fringes of civilized society. But uh, I, I've noticed that a lot of barbarians do end up being outlanders. So we're kind of stereotyping here. Yeah, but we're, we'll, we'll get into barbarian the uh, – because we all are uncultured savages. The players, yeah. not the characters obviously. <laughs> um, we will uh – Get into more urban-y barbarians here in a bit. Uh, but let's talk about what we get in the player's handbook and what we got to work with there. It's actually very straightforward. We got Path of the Berserker and we've got uh, the Total Totem. Barbarian. And there's not really much to say because nobody plays Berserker. Yeah, nobody plays Berserker. Everybody sticks to Totem because Bear Totem and Wolf Totem are dope. And Also, you just don't get that much with Berserker. Yeah. building, But building around these base building blocks that we have um, with – the idea ideas in mind that uh, their rage because rage is their primary function. It's their, you know, it's their uh, gimmick, their mechanic, so to speak. It is the primary mechanic for barbarian. So almost everything has to do with rage. Um, building that world around them and building a tribe, uh, a tribal setting. I'm, I'm just going to keep using tribe or clan as kind of the generic term for where they grow up because if we're going to stick with what is a uh, majority of the barbarian player base does, they're usually um, some outlander. Actually, I do have some really neat information um, that I'm, I'll segue into here in a second, but it does have to do with what the most typical races that play that are used when with barbarian Um so first things first, I guess. Actually, let's start there. What race do they choose and what race does that uh, – what do they have in your setting and how is that portrayed and used? Um, so according to that awesome cross-section of data that we get from 538.com where they did a uh, – It was a review from D&D Beyond of – D&D Beyond of 100,000 100, – 
characters that were made using the website, they were able to find, uh, you know, using what race and class combos, what was the most popular and what was, uh, Least, least popular. Least popular. And shockingly, Barbarian, at least to me, I figured Barbarian would be way down, but Barbarian's actually the fourth most played class, which makes sense because I... You can do a lot with Barbarian. It's They're fantastic tanks, and I always recommend it to new players until they get their feet wet and understand how the game works because um, it's a very simple class to play as well. But the races that were most often used are uh, Goliath, Half-Orc. Unsurprising. Dw- uh, humans and Dwarves. Um, also unsurprising. I'm, I'm a little surprised Goliath is so far up. It seems kind of – Goliath has always seemed sort of a niche race to me. Like why? No, I, I don't mean to be offending any Goliath fans out there. It's just it seems – Goliath to me started as a sort of like – what's the word? Um, Playable orc <laughs> without being an orc. No, just kind of uh, cheesy strength race in third edition. Like you picked it because of – powerful powerful build and not because you actually cared about their society or anything yeah um no they it's uh but the thing with the goliath that works here is that it has a built-in tribal background if you do all the reading on it uh that you can find online and stuff that's like in volos it's i also recommend going back and reading races of stone from third edition has some very good uh descriptions of goliath tribal culture if you're interested but it does sum up a very neat easy barbarian culture for them to have um however if you're freestyling and freewheeling with half orcs humans and dwarves then setting down figuring out exactly what kind of half orcs are the archetypical barbarians so that's not incredibly surprising i think they're in fact um the ones on the uh are they the ones on the barbarian page? No, it's almost all humans on the barbarian page, surprisingly. But back to the main thing we're focusing on. Figuring out how you want to use the totems and adding to the fluff of the totems in your setting is something that's very helpful to do when you have the the standard two barbarians. Because, um, I mean, let's face it, most people and even when I have players ask me, hey, what barbarian path do you think I should go? I Yeah, I always just – like, don't even look at Berserker, just Totem Warrior, because it's going to be the most useful for you and your party. Um, also, it's pretty sweet. But fleshing out but fleshing out uh, any physical changes that happens when they fly into a rage because of the totem, um, what the totem symbolizes, do they wear heraldry, do they actually have bits of the animal um, that their totem is associated with, do they carry those around? Uh, and again, you can always change, like, bear. Take drugs, fight a bear. <laughs> you can always change bear wolf and eagle into whatever animal you want that area to have represented. Uh, aside, has anyone actually seen somebody play uh, eagle totem before like level 10 or so? Because I don't think I ever have. I don't think I've ever seen it either because bear totem is just so good. <laughs> and wolf totem, if you've got a bunch of melee fighters, is also pretty good, but it's not quite as good as bear. Yeah, come on, lads. We're going to stomp this guy's face and everyone circle around him. Um so fleshing out those tiny details is fun. It's rewarding. Add stuff to the player. Um, and it really gives them a much more grounded basis on how their training works and, you know, how their, their education came about. Um, also pertaining to them, uh, is their place as a barbarian? Is this something that happens 
in every, you know, again, defining their culture. Um, is this what happens to all warriors? Are all the warriors from their tribe, uh, you know, technically barbarians or is. You got some fighters in there. You got some paladins in there. Yeah. Is a barbarian like a vanguard? Uh, are they, you know, the tip of the spear, so to speak? Uh, you know, or yeah, is the entire tribe just uh, pure barbarian? Conan the barbarian. Just 60 of them. Yeah, just a uh, an entire <laughs> a gathering of Conans. Yeah, uh, sixty Conan cosplayers. <laughs> what is you know? Figure those things out. Make those decisions for yourself. But barbarian fluff gets a lot more difficult when we hop into Xanathar's and the things that they present there. Uh, we're gonna get the easy one out of the way. Ancestral Guardian is a very easy. I wouldn't say it's very easy, but it's easier than these other two. Well, in a world where, you know, in a world where magic exists and people do ridiculous shenanigans. Grandpa comes back to tell you to stop fucking up. Yeah. Grandpa comes back to give you a hand and hold people's ankles and do other Scooby-Doo shenanigans (laughs) while you fight. Um, It's I I see they tried to sorry. They tried to make a tanking archetype because they knew Bear was super popular. Um, I'm actually not sure what to think about Ancestral Guardian in general, but this is about the fluff side, so I'll stop yeah. mentioning that for now. Um, I think it's very easy to explain given that the uh, the assumed nature of most tribes and clans and things like that that are used uh, in ba- barbarian backstories are going to have a more shamanistic um, tradition. It makes a- sense. Animist kind of, yeah, style religion where, you know, communication with uh, – you know, the, the dead, side. the spirit world, yeah, and things of that nature. Those are going to be common reoccurring themes. So it that one I think is actually very easy to play into your lore because all you have to do is explain away some tattoos or um, a couple of rituals that that or, barbarian may do. Or, or a shamanistic background. Yeah, or shamanistic background. And then, whoopam, you've got yourself a dude who has his granddad run around and uh, stick his leg out in front of enemies. Um the ones that get a little harder on your lore, uh, Zealot is actually fairly lore friendly. It's just, you know, you, you really – feels kind of weird to me. It, it, it's like, – yeah. It I, I like, like it. stepping on the toes of Paladin somehow. I do like it, but yes, it does – It this is untrained Paladin territory. Uh, but I really want to talk about Storm Herald because Storm Herald is one of the least lore friendly classes – in all of uh, in all of D and D, simply because that is a radical jump of weird things that they can start doing at level three. Um, and to expand on that, at level three, that's when they gain the ability to. Uh, let me double check here to yeah, make sure I'm not uh, talking about your ass, talking out my booty hole because it's three and six. I've bookmarked it. Thank you. Yeah. At third level, yep, that was right. At third level, after they've chosen their various background, uh, you know, uh, storm or uh, what is it? Sea, desert, and Arctic, um, they fly into a rage and start doing elemental damage, depending on what type they chose, um, in the area around them. Lightning starts coming out. Fire starts showing up. Uh, everything gets really cold when they fly into a rage. That is somewhat tricky to explain when one level ago that guy was just a dude who got really just angry. a dude who got really angry and was really good at taking a punch when he got really mad. Um, 
So, and that's going to bring us into something that I want to talk about. I've been wanting to talk about as well, but it's was there <laughs> continual storm obsession. No, that's that's your beef. Uh, <laughs> no, the other thing that I wanted to talk about though is, and this is something that I really consider when I see this is a marked by fate character. Um, and what I mean by that is, so you have a player and you need to explain away that, uh, explain away what abilities they have as something preternatural. This is, um, easily the strongest case for doing something like this because again, suddenly at third level, the barbarian who flies into a raid, rage has lightning shooting out of his ass and hitting people and that's kind of hard to explain well uh, it depends of course obviously on the low fantasy versus high fantasy. low fantasy high fantasy yeah high fantasy it's a lot easier to explain away oh yeah that's a thing that tribe does yeah i just picked up some magic when i leveled up in a much more even keel kind of a fantasy setting it becomes a little bit more difficult to explain but that's why i like the idea of doing a marked by fate thing and what i mean by marked by fate is um you know, is this person is there, born during the worst storm of the last hundred years? Is there a prophecy? Were they cursed? Is there some other thing that was done to them that explains these um, extreme powers? I think Zealot's also a very good example of this as well, because suddenly, again, manifesting these god uh, powers, these god powers, yeah, as a barbarian when everything else uh, that deals with the divine, the paladin and the cleric um, specifically. It's very implied that it takes a lot of work and a lot of effort to gain those things and it takes years of practice and study and push-ups and sit-ups and, you know, drinking eggs at five in the morning and going on Eight jobs and reading. Um, you know, it takes a lot of that stuff to finally get to where the cleric and the paladin wants to be. One day, the barbarian just sits up and he goes, Jesus! And, uh, you know, from there, it's kind of scary. So – and you can apply this to any other character you want, but definitely mentioning to them, uh, having that conversation with your players beforehand when finding out what path they're going to yeah, take. As always, when you're sitting down in session zero, ask people what uh, archetype you think that they think they're going to go for because that'll help shape their background. Um, yeah. Find out what archetype they're going to go for. Use that to help shape their background. But then you can definitely slide in something like this where they're earmarked for something greater and it can give that player uh, a lot better sense of urgency and agency too um, as, especially as a barbarian because a lot of people definitely end up playing the barbarian as just the dumb muscle um, stereotypes tropes and I do think Grog from uh, Critical Role has lended to that perception because what he had like six intelligence or something uh, you know and was played by a very good player intelligence is a dumb stand and, for barbarians yeah and uh, just you know played the character like he was dumb but you can definitely add agency and things like that by giving them a more um, marked by fate or selected for something special After as all, a barbarian. They are a PC, so they actually are kind of marked by fate, but that's but beside the point. That's beside the point. Um, so moving on, to, and I think the last bit of barbarian that we want to talk about here is moving away completely from the tribal stuff and the clan stuff, um, which I think is very important to recognize. The thing with barbarian is – much like fighter, it's incredibly flexible. It's Very flexible. They're only the only real mechanic that you have to like truly focus on because you can do totem warrior stuff without like the animalistic changes or even any of that stuff coming into play um, is just the rage mechanic. 
And there's, you know, no reason. I mean, like we described before, John McClane makes a decent barbarian because you need two things to be a barbarian. Unreasonably tough and unreasonably good at kicking ass. And that's about it. Um, You can have any random person. You can have the dude who just, you know, he worked for the undertaker in the city and he carted around the dead. And he also happens to make a pretty decent barbarian on the side because he's seven foot tall, 260 pounds runs a four Pure muscle. Yeah. Runs a four, four, uh, you know, in the 40 yard dash and could start as a defensive end in the NFL, but this is fantasy. Damn it. So he's going to pick up a big hammer and kick somebody's ass with it. That guy can be a barbarian. Anybody can be a barbarian. barbarian. You could be a barbarian if only you have a face that can take shots on the regular. But the point is, um, if a player isn't really feeling the the culture or the tribal kind of vibe that is inherent, usually inherent and implied with barbarians, yeah, then alternatively, yeah, let him just be Joe Blow, random person from the city who, again, is just unreasonably tough. He just flips out. Yeah, and gets mad. Um, I guess that's an – oh, that's a one thing I actually almost missed and that I wanted to cover. Another fun way just to flesh out barbarians and give them you know, something you can suggest to a player that they might not think about is what happens when they rage. Um you know, because traditionally, you know, it's frothing Man. at the mouth. It's they've gone rabid, you know. And, Man literally too angry to die. Yeah. Um, think about, you know, just having them describe their rages and what happens when they get into a rage. And that can really add to character traits and help establish a much deeper. Yeah. Take a uh, all you do is sort of imagine a scene better. A deeper, more well-rounded uh, barbarian, the one we used in the car as a talking point, excuse me, was the idea of a barbarian who's a very happy, jovial, joking, you know. Uh, Doing shots with the lads as opposed to taking shots in the face. Yeah, you know, and he's always a fun time to be around. And he, everybody loves him. And when he flies into a rage, instead of frothing and screaming, he's quiet. And that's actually when the party knows that he's shit's about to go down. Shit's about to go down is when he's not making jokes. Um and that way, you know, you can have these great moments where instead of, you know, I fly into a rage, you know, Thork gets quiet. And as opposed to saying, I'm gone berserk. Yep. <laughs> you know, instead of just shouting super, um, <sighs> it, it allows for much more flexible role play options. Um, actually, Dan, there is a lot of stuff about the Hulk I want to say. But we have limited time as much as I would love to talk more about the Hulk. The uh, Hulk is has a lot of – first of all, the Hulk has a storied tradition. Yes. Um, but also it's worth looking at him in general for barbarian inspiration. Yeah. There's a lot of good stuff they do with him uh, turning into the Hulk over the years and – or you know, flying into a rage if you'd like uh, that can – you know, that isn't him just getting mad. Um, and there's a lot of great lore to look at there if you're looking for inspiration for stuff like that. Oh, yeah. One more thing I wanted to add about the uh, rage thing is Dark, sure. Dark Heresy actually had a – well, Dark Heresy and the other Warhammer uh, role-playing games had a pretty good description uh, I find for Berserking, which is Frenzy allows you to uh, go into a rage, literally beat yourself up until you're angry or just take a bunch of drugs and go crazy. And I think all of those are good examples of uh, how to use a rage other than just I'm going to get angry. Yeah. All right. Druid. 
Hey. <laughs> Back to but, the top of the list. Yeah. So, real world influence. Druids. Celtic Druids. Celtic uh, Druids. Um, go ahead and tackle this one, Paul. I got the first one. Um, so, Celtic Druids, based on the sources that we have available, that is to say, Julius Caesar, um, if we take aside everything he assumed based on the Roman gods, the two sentences describing Celtic Druids uh, would describe them as sort of the learned uh, men and women of Celtic society. In fact, it was pretty much the main path for um, Celtic women to gain influence and power in society uh, outside of being a landowner because Celtic society was heavily dominated by warrior tribes or clans, I suppose. Uh, but the Druids basically fulfilled every single role uh, that a learned individual would fulfill in these more tribal cultures of the Celts, the insular and the peninsular Celts. Um but on, on top of all this, of course, uh, the thing is, is that they're basically priests. They were priests. They were priests. They were doctors. They were, uh, well, doctors, quote unquote. And they were <laughs> medicine men, occasional poets. Um, yeah, they covered a lot of. They were the educated part of society. They handled had a lot of respect too, which is unusual. They also handled uh, religious services, and you know just. Running festivals and excommunicating people, and I don't really excommunicate people, but that's well, said the point. Hey, when you can't, they were show also up, tribeless. When but. you're not allowed to show up to the uh, the festival where everyone gets drunk, that's a pretty steep punishment. It is. Um, but so somehow that got turned. Uh, thanks nature to nature wizards. Well. There's a way that happened. Uh, when Christianity became a big deal, all of a sudden they explained away the uh, druids of. The various tribes as uh, wizards and sorcerers who did pagan dark, magicians, dark magics. Um, and that's kind of how we landed on Druid as we got it today, which is nature wizard. So first thing I want to say before we even get into uh, like real world and like fictional druids and things that you can kind of look at as options Um so that very same graph that we use now, granted, this is a chart that was only taken from uh, August to September in 2017. So this is one month of data and this is 100,000 characters that were made. But according to that cross section of data and I've looked for more and we have no other data like this. So it's kind of what we got to base everything on. Um, Druid is the least played class in the game, which shocked the shit out of me um, at 6.5 percent of uh, players overall chose Druid. With a majority of those being elves. Um, Not terribly surprising. They live in the woods. So let's talk about um, fantasy kind of relations to druids. And basically it's uh, – let's see. Tom Bombadil comes to mind. Uh, yeah, although Tom Bombadil's I wouldn't really call him a player character. Yeah. Um, druid has a lot less fantasy inspiration than most classes do, which is part of why I feel it's such an awkward class. Yeah. And I know I'm, I'm talking shit about somebody's favorites. So bear with me here, but Druid has never really come out of the shadow of being a cleric subclass in second edition. Oh, boy. I thought we were saving this for the end, but no, we're getting into that. We're getting into the juicy takes. Go. <laughs> Keep it going, Paul. So, yeah, in second edition uh, and probably in first edition, I'd have to look it up. But Druid was basically just when you picked a cleric, you could choose to have your subspecialization be Druid and you shared from the priest spell list and you copied all of their stuff except you also got some additional nature spells. And 
again, Druid has never really come out of that shadow because it's always had like the divine spell list. In second edition, Druid drew from a separate spell list from clerics, but it was still a nature caster. It also had spontaneous casting and it shared a lot of their spells. And the question you have to ask, or not you necessarily, the, the, the designers certainly probably had to ask themselves was, well, certainly had to ask themselves, why are we not doing this just with a cleric with the nature domain? Yeah. It's because I know nature, I'm trashing someone's favorite. Yeah. But. Nature domain cleric, though, has a lot of the same feel as Druid and a lot of the same established stuff. And, and that's why I suspect 5th edition um, went with the more focus on wild shape. Which is kind of just gravy as far as druids are concerned in the third edition. Um, Butter. You, even leaving aside, if you just didn't have wild shape, they were still a tier one uh, class because they were full casters with spot, with uh, prepared casting. Yeah. So that being said, um, now we have to take this. Oh, and one, one more thing. Sorry right. to interrupt. They also have probably the least inspiration of any of the uh, – the, the classes because they're just Celtic druids. That that's it. It's not like again we went from barbarian where you could be Maori warriors or Vikings or even that one dude who just gets really freaking angry and beats the hell out of somebody. My dad. You just got Celtic druids and occasionally some priests of the old ways in like Lithuania. Yeah. Now in the player's handbook though they do have a couple of really good sidebars for druid stuff and you know how to kind of flavor druid interaction and druid stuff in the world. Um, but the first thing you got to ask your player when they go ahead and they pick druid, um, at second level they get to choose their archetype. Um, and this is important because all the circles would have a huge effect on shaping their background. So this is something I feel like you should probably be asking your player in, play, in session zero. Yes. Um, so – if they go circle of the moon, then that's you know that we know that's the wild shape one. She's Lord Alert. Yep, that is where they uh, um, they take over as party tank <laughs> um, and actually. I got six health bars. Come at me. Yeah, and dominate the action for especially the low levels because I mean at level two they can um, they can turn into a CR one monster at level two right away. So this allows them to turn into things like a giant hyena that has fifty movement speed and, and fifty health and does a D twelve bite. And <laughs> yeah, it's either a D twelve or a two D six, both of which are you know it's a great axe or a great sword. What do you want in their mouth? Um, you can't disarm them, and you can't disarm them. And and they, they can do it five times, and they have a ton of health. And uh, yeah, and then ooh, you knocked it out of. Hyena form. Well, I guess it's time to go back in a hyena form again. I, I feel like somebody didn't balance that properly. Anyway, um, but sticking to you know, and if they choose one of the uh, coastal things, then yeah, they don't have as much power um, with that. I mean, but the they land circles. But yeah, we'll talk about coastal stuff in a moment. Yeah, if they switch. Yeah, sorry. Whoop! I was thinking. Uh, you're coast. thinking two steps ahead. Yep. They stick with the circles of the lands. Jeez, I've been I've been doing word salad all day today. If they stick with those, then you have to decide other things. Um, and you know, gauging by their spell powers, they're still very effective. Uh, the free spells that they get for choosing their various circles. Um, so let's start with uh, backstories and how you can shape the world. Um, oh yeah, we should also mention those two extra uh, is it two or three extra circles we'll get to xanathar's we'll get to xanathar's in a bit we're going to stick with uh this php for now um good old core here's the hard thing about druid stuff 
and that we found doing this show. And if you have any ideas out there that kind of change up things, uh, please let us know. Uh, you know, we're probably just blanking super hard. Yeah, but Druid is definitely the most pigeonholed class in the game. Yeah, I'm not even going to argue with that. Um, meaning that when a person picks a Druid, then you have to automatically assume, okay, well, then you had to learn how to be a Druid from another Druid. It's not like there's a druid school you can go to, so you probably got tutored by somebody. Yeah, you were probably taught. You know, that's how most of the fluff is implied. You know, if you do fluff differently in your game, cool. But, you know, this, the implication in the player's handbook and a lot of the normal sources is that these are just pre – these druids, uh, this is a very small cloistered off section of society that exists in the woods and exists to do nature stuff. I wouldn't even really call them part of society, honestly. Well, I mean, you know they're there. Um, and small towns, they're probably the closest you got to a, an actual wizard. Yeah. But. And furthermore, from there, they are, because of their whole ideals as nature folk and you know folk who work with the fae or they protect the forest, there is always an inherent basis on they have to do shit with the woods. And it can be kind it of doesn't necessarily be, need to be the woods, but we're using the woods as sort of a I'm using the woods as everything that isn't a city. Yeah. Or a town. Um they they have to be inherently involved with nature. And that can really pigeonhole them. Um the only way I've been able to think of like refluffing druids in a different way that allows them to work mechanically as given, but doesn't force them to have to live in the woods all the damn time, is using modern ideals like uh Wiccan, uh like Wiccan the religion, Wicca. This is dangerous territory we're straying into now. Yeah, we might get hexed if I say the wrong thing. Um, which is, you know, fine if they love their religion and whatever, and that's their whole thing. I don't know a whole lot about Wicca. I'm going to be completely upfront about that. But um, there are, is a lot of similarity to a lot of the Druid fluff and the Wicca fluff, and that is a using holistic ingredients and witchcraft. natural properties and witchcraft and identifying certain uh, elements that can be used by uh, items and their attributes. Uh, you know, like if you read into this stuff, there's things on what holly does. There's things on what oak does, what certain flowers do, what certain flowers represent, what they can do in a ceremony, what they can do in a ritual. Um, but even then, a lot of that stuff is already tied into the druidic lore yeah. in D&D, at least as it's presented and as it's kind of put out there. You know, I mean, we still have material components, for God's sakes, you know, and so that's kind of... the fact that I do nothing. Why yeah. do we have material? Okay, whatever. But it's, well, it justifies, uh, you need a diamond to bring people back from the dead. Well, yeah, but why is it a part of every other spell? Okay, well, I don't, I'll, I'll just shut up about that's that. A, that's a completely different show. Um, well, leave it me ranting about why material components are something that should have been left in first edition another day. But that's about the best you can really do for somebody who doesn't want to be explicitly tied to nature, but still wants to do druid stuff Um, there. You could kind of, I mean, we're back to native Americans again, this session and uh, skinwalkers as a thing comes up. And that's something you could twist if you really wanted to very evil druids. We're talking about, now, But, but yeah, it's, you know, it can be tricky. It can be tricky to work with uh, druids and what we got with druids. Uh, Again, they never fell, came out of the shadow of clerics. So that being said, sticking to what we already got. Um, hey, you remember all those tribes and clans we talk about with barbarians? Guess what? Who's the wise man? 
Who's the uh, the learn? Who's the person who takes over the roles of the learned individual? Yeah, who's the person? Outsider yeah, who's the tribes. person who actually has an education amongst these folks? It's the druid. Um, that's why we did these two together because they're if we're going by standard fantasy conventions, these two are going to be hand in hand. Are also both the nature power source in fourth edition. Yep, R.I.P. Um, so let's talk about ideals and things you need to really figure out though when your player sits down and druids uh the fucking fey wild and how important is it because the uh, it's the importance of druids is going to be directly attached to how important the fey wild is because except for maybe rangers druids are the ones that deal most directly with the fey wild on the reg yeah um especially with uh in xanathar's with the circle, circle of dreams i believe yeah circle of the dreams um is where we really get into the whole ideal of the sele and the unsele court and the like how just connected those two are. But in standard druid lore for the game, it is pointed out that, you know, you're usually as a druid protecting a grove or some other sacred place and something that usually has a connection to the Fey. So you need to sort your Fey stuff out first things, first and foremost with the druids, because they're going to be interacting a lot. Hell, uh, the language of the druidic language, one of the special things they get for being a druid um, allows them to, or helps them to communicate with the Fae. Um, you know, same thing with Sylvan and, you know, the other languages of the Fae, of course. But it's implied as part of their duties that they're really good at talking to Fae and negotiating, with, negotiating them, with them and negotiating with the spirits of the forest. There's a lot of very cool stuff that can be done with that. And you need to elect and decide how much access the Fae have to this world. Um, from there, also when designing a tradition, um, Figuring out what, how big and how small these druid circles are and how much effect do they have and what are personal goals. Now, this is one thing where you can actually have a lot of effect on how your druids are handled in your campaign setting. Um, because usually I see druids either portrayed in extremes. They're either um, that really nice, helpful person who lives in the woods and shows up occasionally to um, help water the crops when there's a drought and take care of the sick when uh, – the plagues, uh, the plagues doing a plague in, or they're fucking eco terrorists who will burn down your village for even thinking about cutting a sapling. How dare you look at that maple sapling and think about harming it, you bastard! You cut down a tree for firewood, death. <laughs> you, what's that? You killed a, you, you know, you hunted a deer so you could feed your family through the winter, death. <laughs> Caught a salmon, death. If you're a real understand, uh, if you're a real believer in the forest, you'd be a breathitarian. <laughs> um, so figuring out certain yeah. traditions and things that they can, um, things that they ascribe to, and and something I I want to talk about here is especially with this in particular is why is your druid hanging out with these people? That's a, something you got to figure out for everybody is why are you hanging out with these people? But, I think that's probably going to be the final part of our Session Zero series uh-huh. is how does everybody get together? Yeah, but it, druids in particular generally should not be wandering around. Like uh, hot takes from Paul again. But for everybody else, you can just decide, hey, I kind of like these people for the clerics and paladins. You can say I'm on a mission from God. But druids are – Almost certainly protecting. We're on a something. mission from Gat. I'm so sorry, why help. are they leaving to go wander around this band of hobos? Yeah. Um. With yeah. Again, well, figuring out certain parts of the doctrine is really helpful. 
Um, and also figuring out how big and how small these druid circles are and how much land they cover and what jobs they have. Um, for example, a druid, uh, one of the things like a, a way that would make sense that they kind of have to interact with society would be a druid that serves on a ship. Um, a ship that has a druid obviously is a very wealthy vessel, um, and a druid would probably accept payment for working on a ship so that they could fund other things that they know they need money for. Um, certain conservation money work. Money can be exchanged for goods and services. Exactly. Um, but having a druid on a ship, uh, like a coastal druid on a ship, is very useful because guess who can control winds and storms and how the ocean moves and how the water is moving? They can. <laughs> what do boats need? That shit. They're, yes, who can make water. Yeah, they're very, very useful in that regard. So finding a way to maybe tie them into society and exchanging for goods and services or things that druids cannot uh, necessarily do. Um, druids aren't allowed to wear metal or use anything made of metal except for scimitars for, you know, I'd actually really want to pinpoint why the fuck they can use scimitars and that's it. It's tradition probably. It's tradition, but it's still weird. Cause, oh, okay. I uh, know. Um, sickles. Oh, well, yeah. But Celtic they... druids used sickles. True, but religiously. Yeah, but still, actually weren't... religiously. But... Yeah, but still, like Celtic, they they can they can use uh... <laughs> Celtic. Sorry, I was thinking about the Boston team. Um, yeah, they can use simple the weapons. Boston though. druids. Yeah, Boston druids. Um, okay, now we're being yeah. No, now we're veering. Uh, no, but they can. Uh, scimitar is just it, it. It don't it don't fit. It doesn't fucking fit. Okay. Someone's gonna say, but someone's gonna put me in my place. Jake, someone's gonna put me in my place. Have always used scimitars all the way back in first edition, which they probably did actually. All right, got to keep it moving. Got to keep it going. Um, so this comes up again, though. Um, as we talked about earlier, druids are a great, great target for the marked by fate idea. Um, meaning that. If, you know, as a player, it's a good way to get them to, you know, why are they leaving their forest behind? Why are they leaving their... Uh, it is written that only you can go with this band of hobos and go rob a duke or something. Um, yeah, they're good targets for that. Um, they Another good way to really get the druids involved is some kind of crisis that's affecting nature. Um, but it depends on how you like to run your campaigns. I mean, if you're doing small political world stuff, it can be kind of difficult. Uh, you know, it's it's very easy when the blight has come and is going to destroy the land and everybody's in it together. It's much harder, you know, when the baron is going to do some political crafty stuff. And you know, why would the druid really care? Um, you know, because they have to care. This is thing you need to obviously hash out with your player. Yeah. That being said, though. There is something that I've been waiting for from Wizards that we still haven't gotten that I would really like to see happen whenever they do a something similar to Xanathar's again or we start getting more uh, splats. Um, next Unearthed Arcana. Yeah, most, next Unearthed Arcana and they start doing more stuff for uh, clerics and other classes and whatnot and give us new archetypes is Urban Druid. Something very near and dear to your heart, Paul. So I'll just yes. let you take the stage here. So <laughs> – to me, the archetype of Druid has always been sort of pigeonholed by I live in the woods and I fight bears or I hug bears. I'm a Druid, not a ranger. But <laughs> again, a lot of Dungeons & Dragons campaigns take place in urban settings. And while it can be fun to do the fish out of water thing, why wouldn't 
druids adapt to these cities. I mean, I know they're, I know why they're supposed to be the last remnants of the natural places, of the world, and the old folk, the old yeah, ways, the old ways. But it seems to me like that's a tradition that would eventually be adapted because obviously, um, such things like the old ways didn't eventually adapt to towns and cities and so on and so forth before being exterminated by the Christians. Uh, <laughs> but why? So many campaigns take place in cities. Why isn't there an archetype for druids or like the circle of the land? I get away by using the underground circle a lot in my own games, but it seems to me like somebody has to advocate for the life in cities. Rats and pigeons are everywhere, certainly. And there's there's life. It's muted and suppressed, but there's life there that should be protected. And certainly, fae like people. So some of them like red caps and so on and so forth that hang out near people. And you'd need somebody to deal with them. You can't just let wizards do it because eventually you're going to end up with a half etter cap, half red cap, and a quarter owl bear abomination <laughs> roaming the sewers. <laughs> That's a great villain, by the way. Just Owl bear noises. An ah. owl bear with a red cap on. <laughs> I must soak it in blood. Um, yeah, that is a thing. It's. I mean, back to the whole idea of you know what is your magic level in your setting? Are you high fantasy? Are you low fantasy? Are you middle fantasy? Um, where do you sit? But druids can definitely interact with cities. I am the anti Lorax. I speak for the cities. <laughs> wow. Um, if you are no, but if you're playing, you know, a druid and you've got. Uh, you know, there's a druid in your setting, or, or yeah, wow. If one of your players is a druid and you got druids in your setting, why can't the circles be big enough that you can have? You know, they need an agent in town, a representative to the city. Um, it would make Somebody sense sitting on the town council meetings. Yeah, it would be a. Uh, you know, it would make sense that there would be a much higher ranked druid who um, sits in on these city meetings, and you know, you can be the person who you know they can be your master you can have that player you know serve directly beside them that can give them an important part of the world um figuring out how you want your druids to interact with cities is very important and you need to try to force that bond because as much as the books put it as they hate cities they don't want to go to cities guess what shit happens in cities and players need to be most of the stuff that happens in Dungeons and dragons game will start in a city yeah like some most adventures stay strictly in a city the whole time um, or in the near environs of a city. I mean, well, like for example, Dragon Heist. Yeah, why you know, the hell is there a druid in Dragon Heist unless urban druids exist? You know, things you got to figure out. Um, let's see. Got to wrap up. So, in closing here, uh, so with barbarian and druid, again, these are the excuse me, outsider. Yes, classes. these are the not outsider in the. Outer plane sense, outsider in the outsiders to society sense. Yes, these are the people who would be talked about uh, with whispers, with confusion, um, you know, good ways as a DM to definitely make them, you know, do that whole fish out of water thing. That I'm really glad you mentioned that because that is a pretty vital part to uh, the experience of playing those classes. I feel when you're doing the traveler from a faraway land is why is everything different? Um, why are customs done this way? It's you can definitely have a lot of fun with that, but you shouldn't stick to that old hat too much. That shouldn't be your only gun. Um, you can really have a lot of great story and character development with these two interacting with everybody else and having them, uh, basically in character philosophical debates. Um, 
and I'm not you know sitting here like, hey, we just wasted 40 minutes of game time by these two players yelling at each other about what's right and what's wrong. But you can have this great growth and understanding of characters and development of characters. And you know, this is purely from story side of things. We're not even talking about combat or anything. Um, by having a question of ethics and a question of way things are done. Because after all, some of the most beautiful stuff you can have where, you know, barbarians see bureaucracy as red tape and all this, you know, the fighter or the paladin might see this as, hey, these are laws. These are what we live by. This is how we do it. This is rule of law. Whereas a barbarian might say, well, that is wrong because what is done to the people is wrong. And they can stick to their guns of morality. You can't fight City law. Hall, pal. Yep. So – same with druids. You can do a lot of great stuff um, where they have to, you know, it's in between the lines of law, morality, right, wrong, chaos, law. Chaos order, yeah. Chaos order. Um, and it's just finding ways to, again, I'm beating this horse here until it's dead, but finding ways to make them have to stick to what's going on. With the barbarian, it's pretty easy. Hey, you guys like to fight stuff. I like to fight stuff. Let's hang out. We're pals now. We're pals a, now. I um, need to go back and tend to my grove. Yeah, with the uh, with the druid, you know, there can definitely be ways of uh, – it can be a little difficult. It can be a little ham-fisted sometimes. Uh, things like a rumspringer come to mind too, though, is a good idea. Um, that that's just a last minute idea. I work with a lot of Amish folk, and uh, let's just say that one of them was very different after his rum springer and did not want to. Uh, or Mennonites, I apologize. Um, he did not want to stick to the ideals once he returned. Uh, in closing, barbarians and druids offer a great insight into everything that happens outside of the cities, what happens in the dark and what happens in uh, the untamed places, the untamed places, the savage lands, the wild places and treating them with respect and treating the ideals presented um, by the players and everything else in your setting with respect and proper research and due diligence to make sure that everything that you're using as inspiration is properly cited, respected, and done can build you a very rich setting um, and someplace that your players might want to see. Because once you finally escape the bonds of the city and you go out into the wild to have somebody who can break down in character um, the fears and um, just the, the general living conditions of a wild place can definitely add to the sense of adventure in everybody's heart. It'll make it feel like a more real place. Having a guide is very important. And these two are going to be the guide in that circumstance. And so in closing, use Wikipedia. I'm Jake. I'm Paul. And we are two and a half DMS. Uh, Clint, said something about being back soon so wouldn't that be sweet hey you enjoyed today's show go like us on facebook facebook.com slash 3dms podcast um that's three spelled the old-fashioned way t-h-r-e-e dms dms podcast uh go there give us a like give us a follow send us a message tell us how bad we are tell us how dumb we are we love that shit um find us on twitter uh, our twitter is at three underscore dms underscore pod um three again spelled the old-fashioned way 
I think we're making an Instagram soon, Paul, where we're right. going to start doing daily content. Hmm. And, you know, usually it's just going to be two minute videos of whoever uploads something in what looks like to be the closest to a den in one of our houses. It's how we want to do it. Damn it. Um, and with that, I hope all of you have an excellent week, have an excellent game next time you play. And I'm Jake. I'm Paul. We've done that for the second time. Goodbye, everybody. We'll see you when we see you. Later.